Our guest is Jocelyn Simonson. Oh, that's the beginning of the show right there. Oh, boy. We're back. <laughs> that's the beginning <laughs> of the show. Boom. We're right into it. We're starting the new year right into it. No nonsense. This is the year of no nonsense. Really? This, yeah, that's the worst um, uh, chapter of Infinite Jest. But um, is what called? It's called the year of no nonsense. The year of no nonsense. I don't. I don't think there is such a thing. That's See, I'm starting off trying to make a joke. It's not landing. Right, <laughs> Jocelyn, you're going to have to help us like get back into this thing. <laughs> what? 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 She, she's now just a little too loud for me. Uh, <sighs> so I. So I was correct. This is also a hardy perennial. Oh my god. Well, mm. I have an infinite just question. Oh my god, Christian has the answer. Uh, no, well, aren't, it's, yeah. aren't the chapters named after products? Yes. I mean, so one of the motifs in the book is that years themselves have been bought by um, corporate entities for advertising purposes. Nice. I even made a playlist. I think it was last year. You know, I, I like to make these playlists. I, I, I use Spotify now, but you can use Apple Music, whatever. I, I like to use playlists to kind of get together the music I'm listening to at any time. Because I find when I go back to that playlist and listen, I, I can remember that time in, mm. a, in a very kind of direct emotional way that, you know, you have a harder time connecting with if you just try to cast your mind back a little bit. Sure, sure. So I think I, I called my year my year end playlist last year uh year of the depend uh adult undergarment. <laughs> because well it was a year where, where such a such an item could have been useful even for people who don't normally rely on such things. And um <laughs> I don't, I don't think it, I follow but you don't. It was not a great year, Joe. No, it was not a great year, but I don't understand not what this it has this to is, do this with adult incontinence. This is <laughs> Well, that's a very specific product. Some of us found involuntary, um, you know, well, I, why are we going into this? I, I'm not going to explain the joke to you. Okay. Um, but um, <laughs> it was also it was also an actual chapter in Infinite Jest. Oh. Yeah. Nice. So there you go. Or an actual year. I don't remember if it was a whole chapter. I have not read Infinite Jest. Uh, I've not even attempted to read it. I, I do uh, like a lot of uh, the writings of David Foster Wallace. So you might predict from that that I would have attempted it, but uh, no. Yeah, no, we've been through this before because you always recommend um, uh, Tense Present. Tense Present, yeah. Yeah, an article he wrote. I think it was in The Atlantic. And I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to be one of those guys who can't shut up about, shut up was about it in Infinite Jest. New Yorker or The Atlantic? Or, no, it was, I, I think it was New Yorker, but it, we've, we've linked it before in the show. One of the most brilliant comments on uh, being a grammar nerd ever. I, I have to say, I'm, I'm feeling now, so, so Jocelyn, as you can tell, we're kind of just, we're shaking out the cobwebs here because we've been off for a little bit. Um, and I have been absolutely immersed in this uh, Richard Powers book, The Overstory, which is fantastic. Oh, this is the two places that it can't connect where they do connect or what is uh, it called again? No, it's The Overstory. Okay. Yeah. What's so, The Overstory about? It's about trees. Trees? Mm-hmm. Okay. And people. Oh boy, and uh, yeah, you know it's it's absolute. I don't want to say any more because you just have to read it. It's just great. It's okay. just great. Wonderful. And maybe we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll have a little book corner another time. But oh, all right. I feel like now we should start talking to Jocelyn about her exciting paper, which is not the overstory. Jocelyn, you didn't write the overstory, did you? I did not. Okay, you're not secretly this other dude. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I was too. After reading this book, you know, but yeah. well, one life and all that. So the paper is called The Place of the People in Criminal Procedure. Is that, do I have the last word there right? Or is it just criminal law? Criminal procedure. You got it. Criminal procedure. And, you know, the people is in quotes uh, in your title because there's this sort of funny convention uh, that is common in criminal cases, at least in some of the states of the United States, uh, that 
instead of saying state against Jones or state against Smith, um, or in the case of the federal uh, criminal law, you know, the United States against Jones or Smith, it's the people against Jones or the people against Smith. So the people is this interesting invocation of the, the people, we the people, in the place of the state as, a, as the enforcement of criminal law, sort of an embodiment of the people. And one thing I really love about this paper, and, and we've been chastened by, by some of our listeners to give authors a better opportunity to state their thesis and all that, so we will do that. <laughs> but but before, you know, one of the things I really love about this, this project uh, and this paper, which I enjoyed thoroughly, is that you're starting with something that is so um, familiar and so comfortable that you forget that you could ask a really deep and generative question about it. But that's what you do. You, you take this thing, this, hey, the people against Smith, and you say, well, you know, what's that about? And oh, I see how that appeals, especially to you, Joe, like the, the careful kind of textual reading of it. The, yeah, and how, it's starting yeah. in a very small thing, and spe- like from an acorn, a mighty oak can grow, right? <laughs> and, and that's what this paper is. And, and in particular, thinking about that, meditating on that can lead you to appreciate a certain perspective that you didn't know that you had, but had kind of become accustomed to. Right. And an alteration of that perspective through thinking about it may help you to appreciate things which at once seemed radical as maybe not so radical, but maybe even necessary. Right. It's like it's like it's a version of that feeling when you're when you're a kid or even an adult, like when you see those pictures of the earth from outer space. Yeah. You're like, whoa, you know, I know that's here, but oh, my gosh, that's such a different perspective on it. It's still the same thing, but it's radically not the same thing. The, mm. This paper is like that. It pulls you into outer space. <laughs> Jocelyn, that's a, that's a huge buildup. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you want to. Right. And this concludes our program. <laughs> um, well, I, I appreciate that. I, just my initial response to hearing you describe it that way is that, you know, in the paper, I describe this idea of the prosecution as the people as kind of an ideology. And I was initially sort of resistant to the idea of describing it as ideology because ideology is such a packed word. Uh, but in some ways, what you're describing right there is another way of saying there's an ideology out there that's around us that we don't normally notice that ends up legitimizing things that might maybe we don't want to or masking things uh, that are better than we think they are. Absolutely. I mean, I think, it's, I think that ideology uh, is, a, is a great word uh, for just the reason you state, that it, it comes with it's a concept that's embedded in the concepts you're talking about are embedded in this very thick interrelated set of things that come together as a package. And so when you're, when you, when you're looking at one of them and you can sort of see the way it connects to the other things, you really don't understand it if you don't see the, the stuff in which it's embedded. Right. You, you wouldn't really actually be appreciating it. Um, so, so, so in the interest of summary, in the interest of summary, the, um, why don't we just kind of get out on the table what follows from identifying and what the problems are with identifying the people with the prosecutor as an institution and how it could be different? Yeah, so the problem isn't that we think of the prosecutors as representing the public in some kind of way. I don't think that's a problem. Prosecutors are the state actors who we've decided get to prosecute people. 
so to put that aside as something that's okay, what's problematic with taking prosecutors and saying that they are the people or even just having the ideology that they represent the public is that it separates out this dichotomy, uh, the people versus somebody. Um, and so that the public is on one side of this V and a lone defendant is on the other side of the V. And this dichotomy comes out, you know, part of my, you know, I play with the idea of the people, but what I really try to do is map out this dichotomy between the people or the prosecution and the defendant that comes up really at almost every moment of criminal procedure, every moment of criminal adjudication, at least, in which we design these processes and then we construct constitutional doctrines. And then as a result, we're all imbued with the sense that defendants are on their own and they don't have the support of the public or the people. And if anyone is supporting them, it's probably their mom or their cousin and not anyone who's representative of a broader community or of a broader public. And so there are a number of problems with this, but I sort of put them into two buckets. Uh, one problem is with this idea of representation, uh, this idea that prosecutors represent all of us, which allows us uh, to discount kinds of participation that come from people who maybe don't agree with the prosecution uh, or don't believe, don't agree with a general uh, way of addressing wrongdoing uh, through the criminal law. And the second bucket of problems has to do with just how we think of who the public is that we want to let participate in the criminal process. So if the public is on the side of the prosecution uh, as our ideal, then when you have a member of the public who doesn't believe in this particular prosecution, they become biased. They become someone who we don't want to let participate. Uh, so one example of this that I talk about in the paper uh, occurs in jury selection. When we decide uh, who should and shouldn't be on a jury, uh, traditionally, if a juror says, I don't like the police, uh, or um, I sometimes have trouble with some kinds of prosecution, and then they're asked, well, can you be fair and unbiased? And they say yes, a prosecutor can still strike them for cause. Conversely, though, there's no way in which if someone says, I love prosecution or I love the police, uh, often they cannot be struck for cause. Uh, and so we've constructed this idea of someone who is unbiased means that you're in favor of the status quo and how we do things. Um, and so we can talk about that more if you want. But part of what I try to do in the second half of the paper is put forth a different way of thinking about the criminal process. And here I'm inspired by uh, tactics from social movements that I've uh, studied and written about before, uh, particularly community bail funds, participatory defense, and court watching, all of which are ways in which groups come together and intervene into a criminal courthouse on behalf of a, of a defendant. In other words, show that the public is on the other side of the V. If we look at those kinds of participation on the other side of the V, and we start to value them, and think about designing procedures in which people can intervene on either side, then I think that we end up with a criminal process, or my theory is that we end up with a criminal process that will more honestly reflect public ideas of justice. Yeah, and you talk about this model as, as agonistic, right? Um, yeah. We can talk about how that's different than antagonistic, but um, but basically a, a, an institutional design within the public that, that foments a kind of contest um, and, and, which is contrary to kind of traditional representation theory. Um, do you want to say anything about that? 
Yeah, so this idea of agonism uh, often comes up in political theory that uh, is not at all related to something like adjudication. Uh, it, like you say, is more about political representation. Um, but the idea of agonism in the context of, say, the criminal courthouse would mean that uh, there's a, a collective within the polity who profoundly disagrees with the status quo, with the reigning, uh, with the reigning way that the government is doing business. But it doesn't have to revolt, um, you know, in sort of the Sean Tolmuth's definition of agonism. You don't have to have a revolution. Uh, to have agonism confrontation would mean that you use the processes that are in place to uh, engage in contestation and to display your profound disagreement with what's happening in a respectful and adversarial manner. So it actually is a form of adversarialism. It's just not a form of antagonism because it's, it's respectful. And so part of the reason I like using the idea of agonism is that it gets us at this idea that somebody could be a, a member of the public who really just doesn't think that prosecution is the answer to something like petty theft, and they could still be welcomed into a courthouse as a participant uh, despite that profound disagreement. In that sense, the agonism is a, uh, is a profound uh, agreement, a profound uh, commitment to the common project that's underlying the thing about which we're disagreeing. Because you're, you're saying, I want to be present. I want to uh, articulate in a very concrete way, on a very concrete occasion, what I profoundly disagree with in what you're doing. But I want to do it in a way that's respectful of a deeper way where we're sharing something. Like we're sharing a a a, 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 law, a law a lawfulness or a legal order in which we can disagree about this stuff um and and in that sense we're agreeing about something else right even though we're disagreeing about this thing over here we're sort of agreeing that doing this rather than you know grabbing cudgels and start beating <laughs> each other's heads like that that's not the right thing to do in some ways that happens every time a um a group of justices writes a dissent Right. I mean, that, that's a that's agonism right. on di on display. Right. Our system is allowing room for disagreement and yet still arriving at an authoritative result or civil disobedience, too. I would I would put that in the same um, uh, the, the sort of uh, Gandhi or MLK flavors of civil disobedience are, are committed to sort of peaceful, mutual recognition in a way that that honors the law at the same time that it challenges the law. Um, well, it, that's how I, that's how I would describe those things. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what all is included in the concept of agonism, but in terms of this paper, I don't know. Well, let's get into, that's a more yeah, complicated yeah, issue. Let's get yeah. into that a little bit later. It was a more general, I, I was referring to something more general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to, to sort of respond to that idea, I do think it's true that, uh, the kinds of participation in everyday criminal courthouses, everyday adjudication that I'm thinking about are, respectful and represent agreement with something, but I'm not sure that something is necessarily the project of criminal law that the state is engaged with. Uh, the respect is, I think, for something larger uh, in which one could actually disagree with the idea of criminal prosecutions pretty profoundly. 
So, so it might be uh, an a, an agonistic perspective might be broad enough to include the active participation uh, uh, on the defendant side of those who believe in maybe the abolition of of nearly all or, or perhaps all criminal law entirely. Right. And that's not everyone we're talking about, but part of this project is trying to find a kind of criminal procedure that does include uh, the abolitionist end of the spectrum as part of who the polity is. Because they are members of the polity. Right. You make the observation at the end of the paper, which is which I thought was particularly powerful, that that an openness to this point of view that that we could have the people participating on both sides of the V. Um, wh- one of the things that could lead to is less criminal law. Um, That's and right. That, and that that would be that that, that um, is part and parcel of what can be worthy in this process, that if you are fully including more of the all the different kinds of people who live in our polity when some of them want there to be less criminal law that could be an outcome and that would be good for that reason that well that that better reflects the full range of the people who live here that's right and that kind of an outcome is one that historically when uh nullification was an open thing that people engaged in was something that we thought of as part of democratic criminal justice but now that nullification is the secret thing and we have these other ways of mediating public sentiment, it's become not part of what we think of when we ask the public to uh, give input into criminal law. So, so I want to eventually get to um, I want to do two things and, and if you guys will entertain it. But uh, the, the first is to think about the nature of representation under the under the existing model, the people model. And and what's driving your intuitions here? But but also, I, I want to kind of make more concrete the specific ways that people can participate. I want to mention those things in particular because then I think the debate about it will be more fruitful. Um, but before we do that, before we mention the ways that you imagine the public um, uh, of uh, different members of the public, different segments of the public becoming involved in ways that they choose uh, un- under the agonistic model, um, I just wonder how much is driven. How much of the desire to increase that participation um, uh, is driven by a perception that the that the prosecutor, the public prosecutor, has generally failed as a representative of the people? Like, because there are lots of institutions that are representative in American government, and you know, some you win some, you lose some, right? Um, I may, and, and we've seen that sometimes those fail. So we have things like the Voting Rights Act and. Um, and, uh, and other measures to try to increase the effectiveness of representation of, of, of various kinds of public bodies. And um, a lot of people now, a lot of people are writing about public prosecutors having a, um, you know, a tough on crime bias and not really reflecting the communities that they prosecute. I, I have a hard time imagining, mm-hmm. thinking about any of this without casting my mind back to the current season of Serial which is just right. an absolutely yeah. dev- devastating critique of criminal law and practice. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it makes the entire thing seem like a joke, um, you know, a, a, a deadly serious joke. But like, you know, <laughs> you can't have any confidence in the system, I think, after listening to to that, at least at that level. And you talk a lot about in, in the paper about the actual experience at the bottom of the pyramid, I think, as you describe it. Right. Of, um, right. So if we had better representation Whatever that means, we have to talk about concepts of representation by prosecutors. You know, if they thought of themselves the way some recently elected progressive prosecutors are, are thinking of themselves, 
would you be driven to this model? I mean, is is the possibility of representation? I mean, is there a possibility of representation, or yeah. or is representation kind of it's it's kind of a categorically wrong way of thinking about organizing institutions here? Like, you just can't make it work that way, and you're always going to need to the extent that we want pluralism in criminal adjudication, we're always going to need some kind of like, you know, whether it's an ombudsman or multiple different citizen groups involved in different ways. Like, what's the failure here? Is it a failure of our particular times? Or is it a conceptual failure in designing institutions this way? Mm -hmm. At at, at the risk of, uh, you know, seeking to do too much, I think it's both. I think it's both. So I absolutely think that um, our prosecutors have historically and mostly today uh, failed to be good representatives of the polity who elects them. I think that's true. I think a number of scholars have been making an excellent case for this. Even the ACLU uh, listed a series of reports showing that if you look at various counties in California, people's views of what uh, should happen in individual cases uh, don't match up with what the prosecutors they elect do. Um, and so a lot of scholars have identified reasons for this. Uh, one reason, uh, maybe as much as anything else, is that uh, the process of, of mass incarceration itself has disenfranchised uh, large swaths of, of the polity, yeah. uh, both literally and just sort of on the community level. So, so the representation has failed. But part of the argument I make is that even if we were going to be able to perfect representation, prosecutors are not who we shouldn't think of prosecutors as representatives of the public as much as uh, state actors who are we are giving permission to use violence against individuals uh, in the name of criminal law. And I think that distinction matters a lot, because if we think of prosecutors as pure representatives of the public, or maybe not pure, but just legitimate representatives of the public, if we call them the people when they walk into a courtroom, um, then we persist in this ideology that people who don't agree with prosecution, either in the individual case or more broadly, are not part of the public who we want to include in what we do. Mm. But if we shift that and say, uh, by all means, we should do better at electing prosecutors who represent the opinions of the county that they're in. And I think we are starting to do better. That's the push for progressive prosecution. I don't think that's a bad thing. What I worry about is relying on, say, the idea of, quote, progressive prosecution as the answer to uh, or how to get to decarceration on a large scale. I don't think it gets us there. Um, I think that we're going to continue to exclude uh, the people who have the most profound disagreement with, with what's going on. And it's that profound disagreement uh, that I think is, is the only thing that's going to be able to really uh, shake up what we're doing. The political scientist who gets the closest to making this argument, I think, is Mary Gottschalk who wrote this book called Caught um, and argues uh, something and not, she doesn't write about prosecutors in this way, but something similar in terms of thinking about large scale change. Is the problem that like having a single representative of a, of a polity, um, you know, one of the justifications for that is that, you know, to win representation, you need to establish a coalition, a winning coalition and, which means you kind of maybe you drive toward the median voter. I know there are more complicated models of this, but basically you win some, you lose some, you form coalitions, you don't. Um, and this is a way of kind of creating representative policy through a representative policy maker. But prosecution, I mean, so one argument is prosecution is just not like making policy because it deals out violence. That's right. Une- unequally, right, uh, uh, within the polity. And so maybe representation as a concept is not pluralistic enough. 
um, it, it, like just in concept. I don't know. It, I mean, do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. There's actually a really terrific uh, student note that was just published in the Harvard Law Review in December. It's called The Paradox of Progressive Prosecution. Um, and it's a really scathing critique, I think, of some of the uh, recent literature that's taken on prosecutorial elections as the solution to the problem of mass incarceration. I mean, it's certainly like I, I don't want to say too much about it because I think it's certainly a good thing, as you state in the paper, to elect prosecutors who think of themselves. And one of the salutary benefits of identifying oneself as acting on behalf of the United States or on behalf of the people is that it can be for the people of, for people of goodwill, a reminder of your representative obligation, your, your duty, right? And that this is not about your career. It's about your representing the community that you were elected by. So, you know, we can talk about whether that's efficacious, but, um, uh, so as you state in the paper, like it is, it's good that some people are being elected prosecutors who, who's, who feel that sense of obligation to the community. Um, but you know, as you state in the paper, it's not enough. And, and you can, and the difficulties, one of the difficulties of, of looking to, uh, a more representative prosecutor is a complete answer to the to the problem of the the multiplicities of the public and their and their different views. You know, you could imagine um, it, it. It's it would simply be very. And I'm sort of riffing here on a recollection I have about a a, a a set of facts in Florida about a prosecutor who who had expressed the, uh, an unwillingness to uh, bring death. Uh, penalty cases. Um, I think it was in right. certain circumstances. Or all, I can't remember all circumstances. But you could like posit the following, right? Uh, there's, an, uh, there's an election coming up for the public prosecutor. And one of the candidates uh, says, uh, even though the death penalty is lawful in this state, uh, I'm, I'm committed to, its, uh, to ending it. And as part of that commitment, I am promising that if I'm elected, I will never seek the death penalty against any criminal defendant. And that person wins. Um, so on the one hand, the death penalty is lawful in that state as current law is currently understood. On the other hand, <laughs> there is a public that voted successfully that person into office. There's something that seems to me, if I looked at that set of facts, that I think it just seems kind of broken hmm. uh, because the the law s- seems to contemplate that there would be circumstances under which that penalty could be sought. This person has said they reject that premise and they've won their election. So the people are speaking to, in those two different ways at two different times. Um, seems to turn on your theory of state and local power. Uh, among other things. Right. And, I mean, and that's it, why it seems, yeah. so you're, you're simply putting too much weight on this one office to do all those things, right? Whereas if you realize that, or if you think that in reconceptualizing it, the people can be present in the system in many places, in many fashions, in many moments, then you don't ask so much of it in this one person. So, office. yeah, before we get to the concrete stuff on that, in that same vein, I was, I'm also reminded of the kind of division of executive power and the debates over the division of executive power. So there, you know, when the EPA makes a new rule, we don't say, you know, people's rule 134.59, right? <laughs> it's, it's an EPA rule. And, and further, we, although a remedy for bad rulemaking is to vote for a new president, like we don't stop there, right? I mean, the, the Administrative Procedure Act uh, and administrative law theory more generally 
um, suggest that there should be a more direct role for diverse kind of stakeholders, for lack of a better term, in, in rulemaking, right? So we mm-hmm. allow exactly the kind of contestation that you're talking about at the administrative rulemaking level for some of the same reasons, right? So even if you have a, a pretty zany theory of, um, of uh, I don't know, of, you know, whether it's chemtrails or something else, right, that we may think of as kind of off the wall, like you're as entitled as anyone else to make a comment on EPA rulemaking, and you're entitled to try to persuade people. In fact, we make available through the law machinery to help you um, uh, make your voice heard. And we also see that with like, you know, public hearings and, and other things in other, in other contexts, local government contexts. So it's not as though the idea that a public institution should be open to direct contest by interested people is foreign to the law. It's, it's not at all foreign to the law. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it this way, which is kind of your waking up comment, Joe, from the beginning, that this institution with so much power over individuals is somehow so unitary, much more unitary in its power than other institutions. Yeah, just shielded from, among other things, conventional administrative law approaches. Like, why isn't a ton more of what prosecutors and police do subject to things like notice and comment rulemaking and the like? Because it doesn't seem to be. Or when bringing a prosecution with a jail sentence of more than a year. Although, look, I know a lot of the great scholarship these days is about just how much damage is done by lesser sentences. Right. And, yeah, so I don't want to. But um, for certain acts, like why, why shouldn't there be a public hearing about whether to proceed? You know, that's maybe the role of the right. grand jury. Maybe it's the role of the jury. But um, maybe a public hearing wouldn't be yeah. a bad idea. And there are a couple of interesting pushes in uh, criminal legal scholarship to do those sorts of things. So there is a strand of scholarship that's more recently been pushing for things like notice and comment uh, at different points in the criminal process. So Barry Friedman and Maria Ponomarenko, for example, have a proposal like that in the context of policing. And they're actually starting to work with police departments to try to do that. And then there are a series of scholars, uh, many of them, uh, Laura Appleman has actually written a a book about this, who uh, have advocated that we bring back the jury uh, not by having more uh, criminal, full-fledged criminal jury trials, but, but ha- by having juries at different moments, like at the moment of bail setting or at the moment of pleas or even the moment of charging. And I think that those are all great ideas, but I'm not sure, I'm still not sure they totally solve the problem uh, because we still have juries captured by the kind of ideology that I'm worried about in the first place, if that makes sense. Yeah. In addition, you know, thinking again, back to listening to Serial and also knowing students who are prosecutors and knowing and and defense attorneys, um, just knowing how the system works, like adding more process within the system. (laughs) Like I know how the system reacts, right? The whole, Mm -hmm. the whole kind of uh, uh, plea bargaining house of cards, right, is, is built up precisely to avoid, to make the adjudication of criminal violations even possible. And I don't know. I mean, you add more and you imagine the hydraulic um, system reacting in a way that may be not quite what we intend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe, maybe the problem is just too many crimes being charged. Too many crimes. Well, too many crimes existing could also be part of the problem. Yeah. When I say charge, I mean like too many charges. But as you point out, there are too many, too many things are, are categorized as crimes on the books. But should we move to the concrete Suggest what yeah, what, what what um, agonism entails. What are some examples of agonistic procedures that be might terrific. be injected, and we can talk about that. She, like, I think she, yeah. Jocelyn, you already mentioned the three of them that you mentioned in the paper just by by their by their label. But can you? Why don't you set them out for us? Yeah, sure. 
And I'm, I'm grateful to do this because in some ways, even though this is a theoretical paper about ideology, it starts from the point of looking at what social movements are doing inside of the courthouse and seeing them as these vibrant, profound things that should be a part of our criminal procedure. So to take one example of uh, bail funds, bailouts, or community bail funds, uh, those are groups that generally have one revolving pool of money in a jurisdiction and bail out uh, post bail for strangers for uh, post bail for strangers who they don't know out of a larger belief that uh, the the bail being set in that case is unjust or that prosecutions are, are unjust or whatever it might be, or just the fact that uh, people shouldn't be incarcerated uh, based on their inability to pay. So they post bail for a variety of philosophical reasons, but as members of a community. And over time, uh, when they do this, uh, community bail funds that have been in existence for uh, months or years, and there's now uh, almost 40 community bail funds around the country, uh, they demonstrate by doing this that, first of all, uh, when bail was set in their name, uh, they, as members of the community, uh, didn't believe that it was a just thing. Uh, and second of all, when the person who they po post bail for comes back to court without having committed any uh, additional crimes, which almost all of them do, uh, it sort of displays through action the absurdity of the idea of money bail in the first place. And what these groups do is over time, uh, they develop this expertise and this way of speaking on behalf of the community that calls into, into question a lot of things about money bail itself, including uh, some of the ideas undergirding the constitution the constitutionality of pretrial detention in the first place. Um, and so without going into too much depth there, I do think that the idea of a community posting bail for a stranger uh, on its own is the kind of act, the kind of intervention that if we think of the people only as on the side of the prosecution, it's illegitimate. But if we think of the people as on both sides, uh, becomes something that we want to welcome and embrace and facilitate. Well, can we take that one? So help yeah. me think about this one. So um, one way of seeing this theory is that, um, you know, e even if criminal adjudication will always be imperfect, a more perfect system will involve opportunities for public contestation at levels other than voting for the prosecutor um, uh, or maybe funding a defense or something like that. And, and this is one of them. And so the way we should do pretrial detention is by allowing members of the public to bail out and whatever. But that's one way of seeing it. Another way of seeing it is that there are a bunch of people who think that cash bail or even pretrial detention is a really bad idea uh, for lots of reasons. And this is a way of uh, undermining uh, the, the system which now exists of cash bail. And so it's, it's, it's more antagonistic toward the existing rule of law than, than agonistic, if we want to make that kind of distinction. So, I mean, do you well, understand the tension I'm trying to, I, I don't know. So I, I don't know if I've said it well. But. But I don't, I, it's a tension, but I don't think it's an agonism, antagonism tension. I think that's what agonism is. Agonism is taking tensions that we can't get rid of and acknowledging that and welcome, welcoming them into it. So in the traditional political theory of agonism, uh, the end isn't a compromise. Hmm. It's uh, someone's idea wins. So uh, it's, you know, it's agonistic con confrontation over big ideas. Uh, but if you're doing it by taking a process that's in place, like the setting of bail, in fact, a historical process that's been here longer than even the jury, uh, in which we say oh, we're going to allow members of the community to speak for each other so that we don't have to leave them uh, in jail or prison while we figure out their case. If you take that longstanding 
way of having communal input. And you use that uh, to as political performance in addition to helping out an individual. Um, I'm not sure that's antagonism. I think it's really powerful agonism. Yeah, so maybe the distinction I'm trying to think about is is whether there's a kind of like public participation or agonism which is aimed at changing the criminal adjudication process itself. And there might be another kind of agonism which would be a kind of, even if the system were otherwise acceptable, would be constantly um, acting as a as a pluralistic check on the system. So, right. you know, having a public hearing in res- after an arraignment but before trial or something like that uh, is something you might think is a good idea for pluralism and for making the system better that mm-hmm. you would retain no matter what. Whereas this, uh, you know, allowing the community to 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 bail out is is a way of giving the community a weapon to um, uh, to well to you know, to make its voice heard about whether bail is a good idea, but possibly also through constant bailing out will convince people, you know, um, that ba- that setting bail is ineffective. Can I make a suggestion? The, 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 another one of the ones that you mentioned, court watching, it seems like that's an instance where it's easier to imagine somebody participating uh, as an individual in specific cases very avidly as a court watcher and mm-hmm. not believing, uh, even though they really... Uh, uh, are committed to doing court watching, not believing in the abolition ab- abolition of all criminal law. Right, you can you can easily imagine someone being committed to court watching and believing that criminal law's existence in some form is very important. Right, whereas it does seem like the community bail funds are 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 more likely to be uh, peopled with those who would like to ultimately see themselves put out of business. Right, that there, that ultimately the need for such a fund would vanish because ultimately we right. would conclude that pretrial detention with a cash bail system is is irredeemably unjust, uh, and that's what and that's what gives them like the motivation to participate. So I think that's right, but I also worry that we're sort of oversimplifying the radical nature of community bail funds. They're not all that radical. Okay. So some of them uh, might see themselves uh, just as sort of almost a core like. A, a public arm of the criminal justice system that helps uh, kind of reduce the unnecessary incarceration that's happening so as to make it more just. That would be sort of a, a way of thinking about it. And in fact, New York City has created its own city-funded bail fund. So that's an example of kind of uh, from on high deciding that if we give money to an entity that then posts bail, uh, that takes the heat off of us, but also uh, uh, you know encourages decarceration but not abolition. Now, my sense is in, in the paper was that you were quite critical of that. Of city bail funds. Yeah, that you, yes. don't, you mentioned that you maybe it was, uh, you, you were referencing another thing you had written, but it's, my, my recollection is you, you were expressed some real criticism about that. Yes, yeah, so to the extent that it's city funding going into this, uh, this sort of pool of money that leads to being bailed out, I am critical of that. That has to do actually more about some of sort of separation of powers uh, and political change reasons uh, that we can go into. But even if we take away the city funding, there's a spectrum of ways in which one could bail out a stranger. Uh, and only some of them involve thinking that pretrial detention overall is a bad thing, uh, even if many of them uh, think that money bail is a bad thing. So I do think it's fair to say community bail funds, many of them want to abolish money bail. But if we look at what replaces money bail, um, it involves incarceration too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess we could think of this as, I mean, you made me think of various reasons one might 
engage in um, bailing out strangers. And so, so one purpose could be the undermining purpose, right, to, uh, as, a, as a tool to try to achieve abolition. And there we could fork off into like bailing out enough people so that it's actually ineffective to set bail or on the alternative, like sending a message that raises consciousness about it. Um, mm-hmm. But but another purpose that you mentioned is error correction, right? It's just people saying, mm-hmm. hey, this person, you know, the court set bail at a certain amount. We think that's too high or they shouldn't have set bail or they should have uh, um, uh, bailed them on their own recognizance or what have you. So so we could error correct. Um, and um, do I have another reason or is there does that cover the field? I mean, I think there's also just the general wanting to support neighbors uh, and have them be home oh. instead of in jail because it helps your the idea that your neighborhood is better off if people are not in jail versus are in jail. Yeah, that's a huge. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think we've talked about this yet, but it, but a huge part of your paper is um, is suggesting that one of the reasons why the people is such an inaccurate description of the prosecutor as an institution is that. Um, is that the V divides the world into two parts, right? The, the right. prosecution and the defendant. But there's this whole other set of interests. There are children at home of people who are being prosecuted. There are neighbors of such people. Like there's a whole community which suffers some costs and may actually, you know, incur some benefits. But the point is that uh, from the prosecution of someone in their community, right? So if someone That's in right. our community is taken off the streets, there may be some benefits from that, from crimes which are prevented in at least some cases. But there are also many costs. Um, and, um, and so I hadn't thought about that, you know, I, that's a huge part of your paper and we hadn't really discussed it yet. Yeah. And again, that, that motivation would be another example of so many things going on at once. It's sort of just like wanting the individual freedom for this person, even you don't, even though you don't know them because you're of the same community and you think that your community is safer with people not in jail. Right. But then by doing that, you're actually starting to redefine the notion of public safety, uh, which might sound like an abstract idea but is actually a statutory and constitutional idea undergirding all pretrial detention. So it's actually a pretty profound constitutional engagement at the same time. So the, the other two uh, methods that you mentioned, court watching and, um, and participation in, in defense. So court watching, in, in a way, it re- reminded me so much of what the press is supposed to be doing, uh, a free press that's reporting on criminal proceedings. I get, and I guess the, you can't imagine um, the press being particularly interested in doing the other two, uh, uh, you know, community bail funds or, or participating in, in um, defendant uh, activity. So can you say more about, about those other two? Right. So court watching is, uh, I'd say, the most recent uh, tactic to explode. First community bail funds, then participatory defense. And now court watching really in the last 12 months, if you look around the nation, uh, there is funding for and social movement uh, organization around regularly sending groups of people into courtrooms to watch what's happening, to write down what's happening, to blog about what's happening, to tweet about what's happening, um, and to kind of do two things at once. One is while you're sitting there, make sure that things are fair because people, when they know that they're being watched, they're going to tend to do things differently. Uh, but also sort of in a larger uh, way, hold the people in that courthouse publicly accountable and generate discussion about what's happening. So I've actually seen in real time New York City court watchers uh, sitting in a Manhattan arraignment courtroom, watching um, Cy Vance is the name of the DA in Manhattan, watching someone from uh, uh, DA Vance's office uh, request bail in a turnstile jumping case. 
uh, even though D.A. Vance had made an announcement that it was his policy not to request bail in those cases. <laughs> the, court, the court watcher tweeting about it and a deputy D.A. responding on Twitter to explain <laughs> why they had made that decision. Uh, so there's actually court watching has actually taken this social media turn that I find fascinating uh, in which there's real prosecutorial accountability happening in a way that I've certainly never seen in my career before. What about um, plea bargain watching? You know, that's what uh, that's what court watching often is in arraignments because yes, yeah. they're pled out immediately. Uh, but I do think there's uh, room for court watching that happen in all sorts of courtrooms, including, you know, felony courtrooms down the line when, when there's plea bargaining. It's another one of these ironies where it's, again, I, I mean, not even just the press, but in, you know, in an ideal world, a court system would let us know what was happening and we wouldn't have to send in volunteers to spend hours of their time every week letting us know what was happening. So it's not that it's a dream governmental system, but it is a pretty outstanding way of having the public have a hand in what's going on and a say, a say in what's going on and be able to contest and comment about what's going on in a way that state actors pay attention to. Well, the, the one way that 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 value has seen um, ha- has seen legislative support actually is on the other side of the V um, in terms of victims' rights legislation. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, and you that's of a piece with some of the um, some of the negative aspects of, of public participation and giving the public a lot of power that you mentioned in the paper. Right. These are we can all think about kind of early 20th century um, white resistance um, movements in courtrooms in the South. Uh, so there is, um, you know, it, it, it's to the extent that you have an, um, a particular goal in mind, whether it's decarceration or equal administration of justice or, you know, neighborhood building, uh, it, it isn't obvious, is it, exactly how making available various kinds of tools of contestation to the public is going to advance those particular goals, is it? Um, you mean there's always there, there are going to be people on the prosecution side as well? Yeah, and yeah. to the extent you kind of open the, the Pandora's box here, I, yeah. I don't know, it, it, for um, for public participation, I mean, what we've seen so far is a lot of, uh, well, I don't know, but, but public support in various states for victims to be directly involved in the process, and, th- and this would maybe allow them, allow them to be even more directly involved in ways that, I, I don't know. Can Go we do ahead. the yeah. third, like there's the, def- the third defense participation, the participatory defensing? Can yeah, we do that I wanted first? to get that. Yeah, I wanted to get that in context. But yeah, sure. Okay. And then I'll talk about victims. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, we, yeah. got, we got a lot to put on your plate here. This obviously sparked yeah. a lot of thoughts, uh, Jocelyn. Well, no, because that, that was a great question. But I also, I hear you. We haven't talked about participatory defense. So participatory de- defense is an idea that um, much of which was generated uh, by an organization called Silicon Valley Debug, whose leader actually won a MacArthur Genius Award this past year. Hmm. And the idea is that um, people who are involved as defendants and their families in the criminal justice process uh, form groups that get together, learn about somebody's case, uh, and then uh, sometimes the lawyer... Uh, working with them, but often even without the lawyer, do things like investigate, work on supporting the person if they're incarcerated, create biographical videos. Basically, it's a way of getting sort of a communal group effort into somebody's criminal defense. And it's not necessarily about having a jury trial and then proving someone's innocence, 
because let's face it, people don't really get jury trials. Uh, but the places where participatory defense really have an impact are in things like sentencing, bail hearings, uh, even just being in a courtroom to file a motion and let the court know what's happening can speed up somebody's case. Mm. And while they're doing that, a lot of what participatory defense uh, participants emphasize is that among them, they're uh, building knowledge, power, and expertise. Uh, and so sort of another arm of what they do is when there are trials, um, they will try to cultivate experts from the community. So instead of mm. having a police officer be an expert on gang violence, they say, no, you know, actually, I live on this corner. I'm an expert on gang violence. And it turns out, if you look at evidence rules, you could qualify someone as an expert uh, from that experience as well. They're trying to shift power relations in real time at the same time that they work on individual cases. And they tend to measure their success in terms of uh, months or years of incarceration saved. That's kind of the mm. focus on larger felony cases. And I imagine, too, Jocelyn, that like just, you know, a group like that's participating sends a message to the court and the prosecutor that, hey, people are paying attention to this. And and just knowing that people are paying attention and are interested and are investigating, that has to change deliberations. It changes incentives, right? That's right. And again, it's not just somebody and their mom and best friend. It's strangers who have gotten involved in the movement to become yeah. a part of now, that sounds to me, the last uh, participatory defense, sounds to me m- much more like a, a sort of counterpart or complement to uh, victim advocacy participation that mm-hmm. um that now now perhaps uh some of the on both sides that per a victim family member defendant's family member there could be people who have personal involvement or personal knowledge but there are victims rights organizations and victims uh, rights advocacy uh that go beyond the, just the individual person or, or their family so um you know, in both in both contexts, you have people trying to provide a bigger window into the effects of these events in communities. It seems to me quite quite properly too. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, yeah, because vic- victims' families and people familiar with that have a perspective that prosecutors lack. In the same way that prosecutors lack perspective on what their actions are doing to their communities of, of the communities from which the defendants come. Absolutely. One of the things I find fascinating and that I think I'd like to think about more is that the victim rights community and sort of the traditional legislative winning groups that we tend to think of and abolitionists actually have a lot in common if you look at what they value, which includes centering victims or survivors and thinking about where to go. Uh, So the traditional abolitionist view uh, would not be to ignore violence. Uh, but would be to center the survivor or the victim and figuring out how to redress the harms of violence. Just as for a victim's rights, there's this uh, concern, totally valid concern that um, victims and survivors have been silenced, uh, especially when we don't have juries anymore, uh, and especially for what it's worth when they don't agree with the prosecution. Um, so uh, things like no drop policies in DV cases are a right. pretty strong example of how we don't value victims when they're not in favor of prosecution. But when they are in favor of prosecution, uh, we do. I mm. actually don't, I don't mind a lot of, uh, a lot of the elements of what we might call a victim's bill of rights. Things like being notified, being able to be there, even being able to speak. There are some parts of it that I worry about the due process side for defendants. I don't think any of this is in conflict uh, with victim involvement 
or victims' rights or centering the experiences of survivors instead of centering the experiences of, you know, quote, the people or the prosecutors. I would absolutely, I do think there are times where we can imagine, I think this was maybe sort of uh, the premise of your first question about victims, but we might imagine worrisome practices or even just courtrooms being filled up with dueling groups representing the prosecution and the defense and things getting out of control or unruly. I think we can start to imagine that um, and it can become worrisome. And that's where there's constitutional work that is already, the foundation is already laid for us in which we can say, well, wait a minute, if people are participating on behalf of the prosecution, so victims on behalf of the prosecution, then there's a certain point where the due process of an individual criminal defendant is going to come into play and is going to say that certain people can be excluded from the courtroom. Uh, this is something I've written about a little bit in an article I wrote about um, the criminal court audience and how it should be an open and vibrant place, but right. then there are also some limits on how it affects defendants. But I actually, you know, I mean, you could probably tell I don't mind a little, I don't mind a little hubbub, I don't <laughs> mind a little chaos, um, and that would include uh, from victims as well. It's interesting, right? Because um, as much as we, you know, compared earlier the criminal process to like lit. Uh, administrative rulemaking and, and other kinds of, of policymaking, um, you know, one one reform or one of the great reforms of, of criminal justice, right, is, is using law as a substitute for personal violence and war, right? And when it comes to did this person do these things at this time and therefore do they deserve this punishment that we've laid out, like replacing um, ordeal, replacing um, uh, you know, uh, family blood feuds with this moment where there is, you know, apparent neutrality, where the facts are discovered and where there is a sentence uh, either handed down or not according to a finding of those facts and according to the law. It, it seems to be like one of the, you know, or like abstractly at least, is is a pinnacle of of the kind of ascendancy of uh, of the rule of law and, and of you know um, being governed by rationality rather than by uh, rather than by um, passions, and so in a way, like a lot of this proposal is is injecting a little bit more war into a process which was meant to replace it, but maybe just enough war. I, I, so there is a kind of of tension here with traditional conceptions of the rule of law, which kind of brings us back to that first question: Is this a response to the failures of that model? conceptual failures, like it can never deliver what it promises to deliver, or is yeah. it more situational? And I, I find myself kind of struggling with, you know, where are we right now? Like I hear, like I, like I mentioned, I, like I hear the uh, serial podcast and from what I know from others, like, and I think this is a total disaster. <laughs> like there, whatever we think we're doing, we're not doing uh, with the system. And therefore just about any kind of shakeup is, you know, is, is justified. But is there kind of a, a shining city on the hill where where we really do replace uh, war with rationality rather than whatever the heck we have now, where we wouldn't want to inject this kind of hubbub into the system where rationality really mm -hmm. could rule the day. Um, I'm skeptical about that, but I just wanted to throw that out there because I do think it is kind of what your description is pushing up against is in some way um, one, of the, one of the desiderata of the rule of law itself. Yeah, I hear you. It's something I struggle with as well. And I actually, the, the entire last section of my paper is an effort to grapple with this 
worry about the rule of law and sort of simultaneously hold up what I believe to be a truth, which is that we don't have the rule of law in criminal court for the vast majority of people who are accused of crimes. It's sort of the that's the bottom of what uh, Alexander Natapop calls the penal pyramid. Um, so there's there's that. And if we don't have the rule of law at all, then uh, then why not welcome in um, kinds of participation that, to be clear, not all participation, but kinds of participation that will push toward mercy or toward decarceration. And that's where I use some, ide- some of the ideas that Carol Steiker um, developed when thinking about mercy and the administration of criminal justice and thinking about the contemporary world of mass incarceration in which, of course, we should encourage mercy in any way it comes uh, because we don't have the rule of law. So that's sort of one side of it. There is this flip side, though, and I think it also goes to that idea we talked about before, which is that there might be something that we want to strive for in calling prosecutors the people. Uh, There's maybe this idea of, okay, what if? What if we can achieve the perfect criminal justice system uh, in which we have the rule of law? And not only do we have the rule of law in sort of a literal procedural sense, um, but structural in this, we we don't infuse structural inequality throughout it, such as so that the outcomes or that uh, poor people of color end up being who's incarcerated. That might be great, but I, I personally don't think it's possible. If you look at the history, at least American criminal law, if you look at the history of it, we've never had it. And so the idea, there's this tension between saying we should strive for it and saying that, which is and saying uh, in contrast, which is sort of what I end up arguing, that we, my prediction, in other words, is that if we let in this kind of contestation and we do it well, then the place that we're going to end up with is profoundly less criminal law. And that maybe with that small subset, we can try to achieve the rule of law. I take it that uh, the due process concern about uh, the unruly proceeding that you referenced a bit back, um, that, that there's some, there are some questions there about, for example, if the, if the individual defendant in a specific case actually says, look, I, you know, uh, I don't care whether the prosecutor thinks this is a good idea or a bad idea. I, I object to um, this community group that wants to make a video. I, I, you know, I'm a private person and I just don't want other people mucking about in, in my case. Or, um, you know, wh- wh- where do you, do, do you think that these pu- public participatory uh, and and other modalities ha- stand on their own two feet such that even if a defendant objects, there's sort of a public participation due process, right? I guess the free press would say for themselves, they would say, hey, there's a First Amendment. We have a right to be here. Even if the defendant says they don't want this covered this is the court as a news story, cases. we have a right yeah. to be here, right? Yeah. Um, do you think the same could be said for uh, a, the the best way to think about participatory defense or or community bail projects? Yes, I think so. I'm trying to think about how the analogy would go. So the community, a bail fund wants to post bail for someone and they say, please don't post bail for me. Most bail funds would have, have a policy of asking someone first. It, it depends on the kind of participation, right? So if it's people yeah. who want to show up wearing shirts saying, you know, <laughs> right. free so so-and-so, that- can they say, don't, I don't want those kinds of shirts in my, at my trial? Yeah, so that one to me is the easier case because we've already done some constitutional work to try to balance those interests because we do have a First Amendment right to enter courtrooms and then we do have a Fifth Amendment right 
uh, to a fair trial and to due process. And so courts have actually already done some grappling when thinking about, especially on the news side, when a defendant can object and when they can't. And I think in some ways they've gotten it right. And what they've said is that sometimes the public can be there even if the defendant objects because courthouses are public places. And this actually holds up with, in civil cases as well. But sometimes um, the presence of the public in the courtroom can actually affect the fairness. And a defendant objecting to it uh, is going to uh, tend to go on the balancing scale toward the side of it affecting that fairness. And then the public can be uh, can be excluded from the courtroom. I actually had a follow on to, to Joe's question because I was wondering, he was talking on the due process side and I'm interested in the equality side. So in a system which is built up around this kind of raucous participation or at least the possibility of it, you know, what to do with the criminal defendant who happens to get no one showing up to advocate for him or her and other defendants who get lots of people? You know, I, if, if you think that public participation will make a difference in the outcome, what justifies allowing the outcome to turn on on yeah. popular support? I think that's a tough one. And just to add a layer to it. You can think uh, jurisdiction next to jurisdiction. What if one of them has a community bail fund and the other doesn't? Mm. And so one ends up with uh, lower pretrial detention rates because they have a bail fund bailing someone out and the other doesn't. Um, I think they're both problems. And I I actually would never say that they're not a problem. The reason I don't think it means... The answer to me, though, is not to disallow all participation because it's going to be unequal. Rather, if we welcome in the participation, then... First of all, it might multiply if there isn't uh, state resistance to it. But second of all, part of what it does is not just about is not just about those outcomes in that particular moment, but rather about larger shifts in how the public thinks about justice and what our dominant policies are. Uh, so, especially if you're looking within one jurisdiction, uh, when the community bail fund is doing something, or when court watchers are doing something, or when participatory defense is just helping one defendant. The idea is that it should shift power and lead to change more broadly. It's interesting because I think I think uh, one of the things you can observe about prosecutors as representatives is that is that there's a professionalization uh, function over time that has taken place. You you can think of the professionalization of of police functions as well. And mm-hmm. one thing about the public participation on the other side of the V that you've been describing, part of what makes it go, part of what makes it interesting is its vibrance and its non-professionalization, that it's, that it's just people in the community who want to participate. And that both, you know, intrigues me and fascinates me, but, but there are also <laughs> moments when I was reading your paper when, it was, when I was feeling a little bit of dread. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you mentioned in the paper, and Christian mentioned it here as well, the, the idea that, you know, we can point to moments in our history where public participation on behalf of defendants, uh, like trying to make sure that people who had committed, uh, that white people who had committed crimes against black people weren't held accountable, right? Yeah. Yep. It's horrifying. Um, and with that, so you don't want to unleash, um, like, <laughs> like one way to think about law is as an acknowledgement that people are, are terrible. <laughs> it's sometimes and in some places, in some moments. Right. And of course, another way to think about it, uh, about laws, you know, people are awesome and we want to make sure that there are ways for us to cooperate with one another to achieve all the amazing things we can achieve. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like, it's such a push pull. And, and so, you know, I wonder if uh, at one level, the judge as 
the person who's supposed to guard the fairness of the process, even if the advocates aren't calling attention to it in a moment, like that's a key part of the people is in Mm -hmm. the person of the judge. Um, And would we be better off if there were not, uh, you know, crowds of people bringing a bit of a hubbub uh, maybe having a public advocate who is not the defense lawyer, who is not the prosecutor, but is a public advocate who's there to represent, you know, a, the sort of the devil's advocate, if you will, to kind of, mm-hmm. kind of call into question everything happening in and, that room. And, and across trials and, and across yeah. arraignments and can see how the system functions. Um, because, you know, when you when you when you got um <laughs> I mean, uh, we haven't you called for a devil's advocate on another one? Maybe it was with the last time we had Jocelyn on. I I feel like that. I feel like I I hate to be boring, but (laughs) but so so and I and we can cut this all out, Christian. So you know, make a note of the time if you want to. We can cut all about what I'm about to say, right? Which I've got like 20 usable minutes here, and they're all Jocelyn talking. (laughs) Um, Like it, it 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 affects the way I'm thinking about this. That that last night, the president of the United States, sort of. Tried to paint entire communities of people as law-breaking inclined, right? Like that's awful, and so that's part of the public too. Can we also say incorrect? Like, if you want to decrease the crime rate, you should let in more immigrants because they commit crime at a lower rate. Totally fair right. point. Okay, so. my point is simply like <laughs> there are a lot of crazy ideas in the world. Some of them held by very yep. powerful people, and so if if like the the argument hey let's get more people talking in 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 a in a site of someone's liberty being under threat i i yeah. <laughs> like depending on so, the day you talk to me about that i'm going to be more or less interested in all that. right so joe's terrified yeah. what do you say Jocelyn? <laughs> i'm not terrified two responses to that so i'm i'm just as terrified as you are hearing the president <laughs> declare fire swaths of the population uh, to be criminal, especially if you then imagine how it might lead to, it already is leading, right, if you look at federal prosecution, uh, to more prosecution and to more incarceration, all in the name of us, right? That's happening now. Um, and so I, I share your terror, but uh, two things I want to point out. One is, uh, if you go to the courtrooms where the court watchers are, or the bail, fin- bail funds are, or the participatory defenders are, um, I don't want you to overimagine the hubbub that I'm talking about. Right. Uh, not that wild and crazy. It's just that instead of only the prosecutor, the judge, the defendant who may not even understand what's happening and the defender doing something quickly for 30 seconds, instead it takes five minutes and there's a little more participation. So it's not, it's not you know, the wild west. Uh, but, this, but the second thing I would say, I think more importantly uh, for me, because I actually wouldn't mind things to be a little more raucous than that, um, is that... I'm not advocating for uh, the Trumps of this world to be able to participate on the side of the prosecution. I'm only advocating for people to be able to participate on the side of the defense. And that may very well mean that uh, some people who we don't personally or politically or for philosophical reasons uh, don't like and want to see punished, it might mean that there's less punishment or fewer prosecutions. But on the whole, if we look at the state of our country, um, in which we just, you know, more than any other country in history, incarcerate enormous, entire enormous swaths of our population to have a little less prosecution and a little less incarceration, even if it means that some people we don't like uh, are also not incarcerated, is okay with me. Well, for what it's worth, I'm 
I, I prognosticate that the Trumps of the world will soon have a very keen interest in intervening on behalf of defendants. <laughs> yeah. uh, then they can call me out. <laughs> yeah, and I, and and I guess you know to so, so on the on the participating on on the half on behalf of defendants. I mean, uh, I guess I, I don't have that much difficulty imagining a, a set of circumstances happening today where we could point to some parallels about times in, in the late 19th and early 20th century of, you know, again, advocating on behalf of white defendants who shouldn't be held accountable for acts of violence against people of color, right? So, yeah, and one of the things in the paper, I forget who you cite, says, look, you know, that's always a danger, but the greater danger right now is... Yes, and, right, I, the, yeah. and, and I take that point, that the mass incarceration problem is, is so significant um, that it's, um, it sounds like I'm complaining a little bit about, about, um, the, the moat in your eye and not the log in mine. And I, and I understand that. Um, uh, it, so I guess it's just the, the, the hub, the hubbub thing is, is, uh, maybe this is another reason I, I'm, I can be grateful for your paper is because it, like it, it, it highlights just for me personally, my own kind of anti hubbub like <laughs> that i that very idea makes me nervous in in this context and that's worth examining yeah. like i need to reflect on why i'm i'm as worried about that as as i think i am and um and that's that 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 will be good for me to do i do think too if it would be nice to to your points about mercy which you you mention it toward the end of the paper and you mention here again in our conversation like i think that's so valuable and i and i I'm very, um, once again, sort of like Trump ruins everything he touches and unfortunately he's touching America. Um, so, so he, like he's ruining the idea of executive clemency for me. Um, mm -hmm. but the idea of clemency itself, the need for mercy in criminal systems is, is, seems to me very significant and real. Um, and is there a way to bring that back in a jury form like is there an appleman mercy jury model to explore or something like that interesting you know i there has got to be a paper saying that there should be clemency juries but i haven't seen it and there are a lot of these jury papers uh you know one of the biggest advocates for clemency is rachel barkow at nyu and she is not a fan of popular participation in, uh, in general uh, but in her view um there absolutely should be more clemency and it should be something that we push executives to do through traditional Democrat, democratic channels. I guess I'm raising a question about like, yeah, the current model of parole boards or clemency boards or all this stuff. It always yeah. gets channeled back through the executive. Right. It's that's recommendations. And it gets. And I think that's, um, you know, the 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 kind of uh, deep rot and 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 rank stuff in Florida about restoring felon voting rights demonstrated that that I think the the deep unwisdom in that like why are we channeling it back through the executive uh well so in theory we're channeling it back through the executive because they're separate from the executive who was the prosecutor right in Trump's uh federal government we might worry about that separation um but the idea is that if we have a part of the executive branch that is truly independent of everything else going on, then they're going to be uh, more wise in deciding uh, where clemency where, where clemency makes sense. Yeah, I think we are seeing, you know, I don't know if this is true. It, it, my sense at looking at, you know, clemency tends to happen at the end of the year. My sense is that uh, there were uh, broader pushes for clemency happening with more frequency than ever before. 
Um, and I think that has to be a happy political story. Um, it tends to hap happen in places uh, like California, where there had been a decriminalization of marijuana to some degree. So then there's clemency for people with past marijuana convictions, things like that, that hopefully are not that politically objectionable. But still, to have mass clemency on that scale is something new. I mean, because of the nature of the, of the uh, because of the impacts on an individual who is incarcerated, um, it makes sense that it should be hard to incarcerate, but easy to unincarcerate. Um, and, yeah. and so that would suggest that, um, and we obviously we could go into that in more detail and we're not going to, but, um, but that would suggest that you should have a, a clemency board in each of the three branches of government. And so there should be clemency juries, you know, the grand jury should maybe have a clemency power mm. and should entertain petitions. Yeah. There should be clemency in the executive and then the legislature should be able to pass private bills granting clemency. Huh. I like it. <laughs> I don't, know. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a thought. It's a thought. And I, I guess I was putting them in. No, I was putting it in no branch like that. The idea or but but I guess it is sort of a judicial branch that um, that there could be a clemency juries that are routinely impaneled and um, and maybe even I mean, to get truly bonkers, you say, look, um, the, we we have to decarcerate a certain number of people a year and your job is to pick them. Mm. The, that it will happen, right? I, let, but but the ones that but but so but you get to identify them. All right, right? all right. We're gonna have to wrap it up. So I want to just two things. Uh, one, I just realized as you were saying that this is the perfect episode to go back to the flashing headlights um, uh, to warn of speed traps <laughs> that that used to be a mainstay of the show. Yeah, um, because it is that um, little bit of of public frisson, uh, right? That um, that is a is turned as a weapon against the um, well. I guess this is the speeding ticket state rather right. than the carceral state. But all right. So that's – maybe that's not quite as serious, but it, but it seems apropos in a way that our recent discussions haven't been as apropos. The other thing I wanted to ask, Jocelyn – so this is real quick. You, we, obviously, we could do a whole show on this. I just want to get you like your, your immediate reaction, your gut reaction to this. Um, would there be more crime if we abolished prisons or less crime? It depends how you define crime. I think there would be – because I, if, I think there would be less violence. Yes, that's really what I want to know. I think there would be less violence, and that's including the fact that prisons themselves are violent places. Uh, but that's my short answer. So we're going to have to have you back on that because I, you know, I saw that again in your paper, and I've talked to other people who are actually in favor of abolition of yeah. incarceration. I assume that for dangerous people, there would still be some kind of like civil commitment, which went along with restorative justice or something like that. But I would love to get into that at some point because it's something I haven't thought deeply enough about. But it's one of those things like, you know, as Joe began the conversation, you get to kind of take for granted that there's this system called prisons where, where bad guys go for a little while. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it's like time out for adults and it's just part of the way we live and it's a part of the way we've always lived. And so it's just one of the things we do. And we got to figure out how to do that thing better to make it work better. But, um, but maybe we should wake up to the idea that, um, I don't know, maybe prisons are just a bad idea. <laughs> Uh, at least as they're <laughs> currently constituted. And that's something I've not thought enough about. And I realize now that we need to have you back next week and then maybe the week after to talk about this topic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> I do think um, that, yeah, I, one reason why I would love to have that as a topic in a future episode is to explore my intuition that um, that it, it might lead to a net decrease in violence, but it would lead to a sharp increase in blood feuds. Mm. Um which are bad. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking too. I guess what I guess what I would say is that an, uh, the abolitionist idea is not to get rid of prisons. Period. It's to get rid of prisons and use those state resources for many, many other things, uh, which would, on their own, uh, decrease violence. Yeah, and I'm thinking of the research. If that about, makes sense. Yeah, I'm, totally. I'm, think, I'm thinking of the research in, in terms of deterrence as as being measured by kind of the swiftness and sureness of correction rather than the length of incarceration, right. for example, right? And so there are yeah. lots of things you could do if you redirected resources to in, ensuring swifter and more certain application of um, pain in some way, right? Whether it's a fine or it's uh, restoration plus or right. something like that. Which could, be, which could be much less severe given that they were more certain and swift. Right. If you take the sort of basic incentives. If that's true. Yeah. 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 That's true on kind of just a kind of, you know, law and economics theory. But but also like there seems to be research on that. So. Right. Um, All right. This has been awesome. Thank you, Jocelyn. Jocelyn. Thanks for returning again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, All right. I guess I'll hit stop. I don't want to hit stop, but I'm going to because I have to because we got to get on with things. (laughs) We can't have an infinitely long episode.